Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, an organization that exists to connect the Christian faith with the realities of everyday life. As always and ever, I'm Scott Jones, your host, and we come to you every Friday to discuss, among other things, the contents of our weekly wrap-up post, Another Week Ends, which is sort of like our Christian Cosmopolitan's grace-infused guide to the contents of the interwebs as we see them for the week. In just a few moments, I'll be joined by David Zoll, back from paternity leave, and by regular Mockingbird contributor, Carrie Willard, who joins us as a guest co-host for the first time. But before David and Carrie and I discuss the contents of another weekend's, I had the privilege this week of sitting down with an old friend, Mark Tejan, to discuss his most recent book, Kierkegaard, A Christian Missionary to Christians. All right, Mark, welcome to The Mockingcast. Thanks for being willing to sit down and talk with us this fine summer evening. Glad to be here. Mark, you are a Kierkegaard scholar, and you have written Kierkegaard, A Christian Missionary to Christians. And you are also the Director of Religious Life and the Grace Palmer Johnston Chair. I mean, she, of course, could afford a chair because she had three names, <laughs> of Bible at the Stony Brook School in Stony Brook, New York. Now, you... now. You've told me a little bit about the Stony Brook School before. This is a school, is it kind of like Sidwell Friends in D.C., like a school that's got a religious affiliation, but because it's a good school, a lot of people go there that aren't necessarily religious obser- religiously observant in any way? Yeah, definitely. Um, it's got a, a, a very good reputation among Christian schools. Among sort of college prep boarding schools, it's got a decent reputation. But it's certainly good enough to attract um, folks with no interest whatsoever in Christianity. Um, and unlike a lot of the Northeastern uh, boarding schools, Stony Brook has sort of maintained its commitment to faith. Um, so, yeah, that's that's why I came here. So you're for, for, so for a lot of like secular and non-religious kids, you're hopefully the ticket to Harvard. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, totally. Well, yeah, that's true for the, the, the Christian kids too. I mean, everybody. And so you're like the chaplain. I mean, it's like director of like religious life, but you're the chaplain. Yes. So how does your work on Kierkegaard and, you know, which we'll talk about in a minute, because I think this is a really, your book is really interesting for it, Kierkegaard. How does it inform the work you do with the students at the prep school? Like, you know, both the, the, the ones who self identify as Christians and the one who, ones who don't. Mm. Um, there's a very direct way that I'll start with and then I'll get to a, a broader way. The direct way is, um, Kierkegaard exegetes scripture beautifully and thoughtfully and like a philosopher. So with great detail and great patience and slowness. And one of his favorite verses, um, is one of my favorite verses, which is Matthew eleven twenty eight: come unto me, all you who are weary or burdened and I will give you rest. And, um, this Sunday in chapel, I was just working on our liturgy and, um, he, he talks about all of the different kinds of people who the invitation extends to. And it takes 25 pages to get through this one verse. And so quite literally, he helps me be a chaplain because in his exegesis of scripture, he helps me think about, for example, the categories of people in their need, um, or for another example, the categories of people in their um, different places as, as far as faith goes. And so the, the, the broader answer to the question is that Kierkegaard was um, an interesting figure because he really took seriously the cultures of his day. And those cultures were very ostensibly religious, uh, but they weren't deeply Christian. And uh, he took them very seriously. And rather than sort of preaching down at them or disrespecting them, he kind of took them on. He kind of um, uh, took them seriously to the extent that people loved reading that sort of stuff. Um, and that was his way of sort of get, getting people to think seriously. Am I, am I actually a Christian or someone who just claims to be? And, uh, and so taking seriously where these students are, many of whom have no interest or no background in, in Christian faith or in religion in general, taking seriously where they are is just, it's good mission. It's, it's good evangelism. So I think that's one of the big ways I've connected Kierkegaard to this place. By the way, should we just go on record in housekeeping and say, 
I mean, technically, it is Kierkegaard. Yes. Right. I mean, do we want to do doing a column by the property? Because no, the only reason I, I say, okay, we don't have to. It's because, like, I'm a Nietzsche fan, and it drives me nuts when people say Nietzsche. Yes, yes. So we have established that for the popular purposes, we will go with the English bastardization. <laughs> Kierkegaard. I'm cool with saying Kierkegaard. Kierkegaard if everyone else is cool with saying Sun. Okay, because his first name kind of has to get a loogie in your throat to say it correctly. Sum. Yeah, something like that. Sum. So, you know, it's interesting that we were saying about the Matthew 11 being a favorite verse, because you get this. Oftentimes, I think it's a tough balancing act to have this prophetic insight into the cultural idols and yet also be compassionate and pastoral. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, this is, have you, do you ever read the work of Frank Lake? No. He's a Christian psychiatrist who wrote like a thousand page integration of psychiatry and pastoral theology in the sixties. And he, he Kierkegaard is all over it. And he says this of Kierkegaard. So as my Kierkegaardian expert, please tell me if this is accurate. He maintained the full rigor of investigation into the, into the position of a man, the individual who was afflicted. At the same time, he kept faith with the gospel of God in a meek following of the Lord who had called him. I have found in his works more biblical insights, which have been of vital use in assisting schizoid persons into a lively faith than in any other writer. The reconciling personal and symbolic images of the Gospels do not seem to be to him dated. Kierkegaard walks humbly both with God and with his word in its totality, not in any slavishness to the letter that kills, but in a wide-ranging and deep-going freedom of the Spirit. You like Lake Kierkegaard? Right on. Right on. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't speak to how Kierkegaard speaks to the schizoid. Um, I, I, I need to go not read that. That's very fascinating to me. Um, but yes, I think that's right on. I mean, there's Kierkegaard. Um, it's really easy to kind of look at Kierkegaard and say, Oh, he's into paradoxes. Interesting. Um, he likes the absurd and, and, and the leap and all these sorts of things. Um, but it is very true that he takes those parts of the gospel that you have to hold in tension and not sort of go just one way or just the other. For example, uh, grace and works, um, something like that. He takes those things um, and he balances them in, in, in a way that I think is as messy as the biblical picture of those things. It's really interesting because it, for Lake, the schizoid person is, he said it's not schizophrenia where the mind is like smashed into a thousand pieces, but it's actually like a rock cleaved in half, like you split off mm-hmm. from yourself. And as, you know, as I was reading in your book about the, uh, the, you talk about the definition of anxiety for Kierkegaard as being a little different the, than the way we use it today mm-hmm. as being almost like a conflicted sense of drives and desires. Mm-hmm. You know, that, like, you know, you use the example of the student that wants to study for the test and re, or, or wants to get an A on the test and really, really wants to get the A and yet really has some kind of disdain for the work involved. You know, there's just no affections for the work involved for the preparation. And and when there are these sort of conflicted drives, that this is the source of anxiety that it, that precedes sin. Is that yeah? Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's how freedom is disclosed. When 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 you desire something wholeheartedly, it's not clear that you're even free. You might actually be free, but you don't know you're free. But it's when you, for the first time, I mean, I you know, I was did not have a, a normal pull toward cheating. Um, and then uh, calculus happened to me. <laughs> Maybe this was a personal story. I'm just now figuring this out. But calculus happened to me, and um, and I didn't cheat, but boy, I was tempted to. And it was in that I think he's talking about the moment where uh, where you sort of the, the question of of doing the right or the wrong thing, if you can couch it in moral terms, uh, because your desires are are split. So um, that's where freedom comes about, and that's where anxiety is produced. So anxiety isn't necessarily a negative thing. Here it's it's simply the reality. Um, the, yeah, the, the the mouthful is a what is it? A sympathetic antipathy and antipathetic sympathy. <laughs> so it's a, it's a push and pull towards something. I think it's Paul, right? When he says, you know, what I don't want to do, I do. What I do, I don't want to do, and that sort of experience that sounds confusing, and yet we all can relate to it. I think every time some New Testament scholar tells me that's not really about Paul's own life or the Christian life, I'm thinking, gosh, this is yet another example in. Adventures in missing the point. Like it's it's it's, uh, it's amazing. You know, how biblical scholars tell will tell you that a text doesn't mean what every 
person <laughs> the ages knows it means. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, can you tell a story? You saw the story in the beginning of the book, which I found incredibly moving. Mm. You were thinking about becoming a Bible translator. Yeah. And you saw a quote in Campus Life magazine that was to the effect, right, that like if you're not constantly kind of evangelizing yourself mm-hmm. or constantly like in this process of religious conversion yourself, mm-hmm. that basically if you bring religion to another country, you're just going to bring some sort of like imperialistic yeah. thing. So, you know, then you wind up later at Princeton Seminary, right? Yeah. And you wind up in some class in Kierkegaard. Yeah. Like, you know, how, how did you take that class? <laughs> uh, yeah. So, so I, I was interested in, in, in mission work, but interested in taking my, um, at, at that time, I thought it was a gift for Greek. I'm not sure if I was that gifted or not, but I thought I was going to, couldn't do something with that. So I went to Princeton and, um, as you did. And, um, I, I, I had a hard time in the biblical studies, um, department. Um, some of the classes, I, I just, I guess I would say this. I had never had my faith challenged. Let's put it like that. It's the simplest way to put it. And so, um, I, the first time my faith was significantly challenged was actually in seminary, um, which I don't think is that unusual. Uh, but it was in the biblical studies class and it became clear to me that whereas I thought learning Greek would help me draw closer to God going into that class, I didn't see that that would be happening after the class if I hung around. Uh, I mean, not that I dropped the class, but the, the focus you might say. And so, um, that pushed me to, uh, to church history and I took a great class with Kathleen McVeigh, Catherine McVeigh, um, Dr. McVeigh on, uh, the early church and its theology, the Trinity and Christology. Loved it. Uh, but I have a horrible memory that wasn't going to work. And then I took a theology class. And you just did process of elimination. And, in the totally. Biblical studies. Nope. Yeah. Church history. Nope. <laughs> and in the meantime, I actually tried to leave. What's interesting is, is, uh, I had, I had a relative of mine. She was a, a navigator and, you know, no, this is a Christian organization. You're not talking like she's not on a tall ship. <laughs> no. That's That's yonder. No. The North Star. <laughs> she was a missionary to Hungary before you were allowed to be a missionary to Hungary. And, um, she was great. I uh, loves, loves Jesus a lot, but, and, and she, she was, she wasn't, is a, a, you know, what I would call a conservative Orthodox Christian, uh, lowercase O. And so Princeton in the first place was a bit of a, whoa, what are you doing going there? Uh, so when I was trying to maybe get out because I was really confused and, and my faith was sort of getting rocked, it was her of all people who said, but you said God called you to that place. Where are you going, man? So, um, in the midst of, of that sort of confusion, a friend of mine told me he had just taken this Kierkegaard seminar with Dr. James Loder, the great Dr. James Loder. Of blessed memory. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I had nothing better to do. And so I took it. And the first day, uh, we might as well check out another department. Yeah, this off. was, this was three or four anyway. But the first day he just, he prayed. And if you know, if you knew Dr. Loder, he couldn't pray without, uh, oftentimes without crying. And he was not a highly emotional person, but he was just very moved by God's spirit in a way I'd never seen before. And, uh, and he talked about this guy who, Kierkegaard, who I discovered over that semester had the ability simultaneously to, to love God and to think really hard mm. at the same time. And so, um, that's what I wanted to do in the first place. And then, and, and that's, that's kind of how I got to Kierkegaard. And you tell the story in the book of you were going through some notes or something. Yeah. For the class, right? Yeah. So, uh, Kierkegaard's, uh, I think it's his longest book is called Concluding Unscientific Postscript. Postscript. Yeah. Two philosophical yeah. fragments. That's the rest of the title. Now it's a, the book is, is called a postscript. If you're like me, your, your PS at the end of an email is about a sentence long. The postscript that he wrote was five times longer than the original thing. Um, and so it was meant to be, uh, the, the book is quite serious, but there are jokes all around the book. That's one of, one of the jokes. The other, uh, major joke is that the title kind of pokes at Hegel, who thought he had created a system of, of all things. And, um, and, and Kierkegaard says, no, mine is concluding, actually. So it's a jab. But yeah, so somewhere within that book, um, I read, I came across a quotation, uh, that, that indeed you, you, paraphrased earlier that I'm like, that's so familiar. Why do I know that? Why do I know that? And, um, lo and behold, I had, uh, cut out from a magazine, this, this quotation and stuck it on my door freshman year of college. So this is, this is maybe five years later. 
something like that. And it was, it was so neat is that I, I had resonated with Kierkegaard before I knew Kierkegaard. You had this relationship with Kierkegaard before you knew Kierkegaard. That's right. It, I mean, yeah, the, the sort of uh, analogy to me is, is the, uh, we were just talking about this in class, Matthew 25, where these people are doing things for poor people or something. And God says, you're doing it to me. And you're like, I wasn't doing that to you. There's a relationship to, to some being that you don't know is there. And, and apparently, uh, I was a friend of Kierkegaard's before I had, was able to pronounce his name. So, you know, you talk about that in your book, you, you, which again, I think I said the title, but let me just say it once again for our listeners who, all right, everybody listening, get out your laptop, go to Amazon, type in this title. Uh, Kierkegaard, missionary to Christians. You talk about how for Kierkegaard, it's so important. You talk about how basically to know who you are, you need to know who you are in relationship to, you know, and for him, that's primarily as the image bearer of God. So as you were telling that story, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, you had this relationship to Kierkegaard, which is this kind of analogy for the, for what you explain in your book, like the kind of the centrality of the Imago Dei mm-hmm. to under, to r- rightly understanding the human person. Yeah. Um, one of the most beautiful uh, passages of Kierkegaard is in a book of his called works of love. Works of love is, is uh, if you feel like challenging yourself to love your neighbor better, that's the place to go. And um, the, the quote is about uh, an image of a watermark uh, that's in sort of, high quality paper. And, uh, when you look at a, a ream of these papers, you, you could see different things written on them, uh, a letter to so-and-so uh, notes for this and that. Uh, and yet obviously if they come from the same room of paper, they carry a watermark that is common and you know what the watermark is not by like looking at it on your desk, but by holding it up to the light and seeing through the paper as it were. And so Kierkegaard says that, um, human beings in all of their variety um, and all of their different situ- situated situations in life are like those different things written on the paper. But when we see a human in God's light, that is when we um, trust this claim that every one of us bears the image of God, then what we see is the mark of the neighbor. And we are um, empowered to recognize our obligation to each person. Do you get flack for the title or do people ask you about, I mean, did you come up, who came with the title? Cause it's really interesting. I mean, like people might say like, why do Christians need a missionary? Right? Like, <laughs> no, I don't get flack for the title. Uh, that's a, that, that, that's a, that's a good question though. Um, the people who probably don't like the title probably didn't buy the book. So, uh, you know, I spent, you can't judge a book by its title. That's man. true. Uh, I, I spent the previous nine years of my life, um, at a teaching at a state university in Georgia and, um, always felt from day one, wow, uh, my appreciation of Kierkegaard suits Georgia well because it is such a, a culturally Christian place. And so, um, I felt that even though I was at a secular university and, and I was a, a Christian professor and I felt like one of my tasks was to, um, you know, obviously I couldn't proselytize, nor would I do that in a college classroom. But what I could do is lay out philosophical positions and I could lay out theological positions. And what I tried to do is sort of, um, remind the students who were in my classrooms who happened to be Christians, um, to poke and prod them a little bit and, um, and challenge them, uh, in their education. Uh, because I, I think I'm pretty sure many of them were Christian primarily because they were born in a certain place. And, uh, you know, this is a, a theme of Kierkegaard's um, in Denmark. The baptismal certificate was basically your citizenship um, in the in the country. And so you can't, for him, you can't have a greater confusion of categories than that. Um, it's like Karl Barth says, all of Europe is baptized. So what? <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. Yes. And you talk about in the book, like three kinds of like cr- understandings, of Jesus that Kierkegaard has and that you see reflected in the American church. I mean, maybe these are kind of Jesus's that we need missionized from. Mm-hmm. Could you say something about like the three, the three scary or bad? Well, they're not scary if you're falsely worshiping them, but <laughs> can you see, can you see the three, uh, the, uh, the American idol Jesus's? Yeah. Yeah. So the, the, the first is, uh, the liberal theological Jesus, which is basically, 
Jesus is, is lined up beside all the great religious figures of the world and is basically the same, uh, you know, maybe he's got different, different style of clothes or something, but basically he's teaching love like the rest of them and peace like the rest of them and enlightenment like the rest of them. Um, and, and that, uh, view tends to, um, obviously, uh, make little of the doctrine of, of salvation, um, uh, not to mention the doctrine of sin. So usually the liberal theological view of, of Jesus accompanies um, the notion uh, that humans uh, aren't as deeply flawed as uh, some of us think we are. Um, the other two views are sort of in, you know, opposites. Um, I call them the Pelagian view and the grace abuse view. None of these terms are Kierkegaard's terms, but the Pelagian view is simply this idea um, that, that somehow, um, I don't know if it's a view of Jesus so much as a view of salvation, but the Pelagian view is this idea that we can merit um, the favor of God by our goodness. And for Kierkegaard, what I like about Kierkegaard is not simply good works, though he does criticize that view, um, but it's uh, the idea of right doctrine. So, you know, if, if you're someone who, for whom getting your your T's crossed and your I's dotted in doctrine is basically the highest achievement, he's going to offend you deeply. Uh, because for Kierkegaard, he'll say something like this. The doctrine of sin is the following, that you and I are sinners. Mm-hmm. Um, and so doctrine for him is hollow if it's not applied and appropriated and felt. I mean, he's, he is, um, he talks constantly about a sort of combination of, 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 of the idea and the, and the, the, uh, correlative feeling. So you, if you have the idea of sin and you don't have the feeling of sin, then you don't have sin because sin feels a certain way, right? You feel humbled uh, that if, mm-hmm. if you recognize sin, you should, you should be on your way to humility. So that's mm-hmm. the Pelagian view. It's just this idea that glorifies our works or glorifies our theology. Look what, look what I know about Jesus or something. Um, and then the, the sort of opposite of that is what I call grace abuse. And, and you know, it's, this is what Paul says. I think it's Romans five one, but where he says, should we go on sinning? Um, so that grace can abound more. And so for Kierkegaard, he's responding to, um, you know, this is uh, 300 years after Luther. And um, so I call it lazy Lutheranism, but, you know, it's certainly not Lutheranism in its best light. But this idea that because of God's grace, our works are so meaningless that we shouldn't even bother doing them or something like that. Yeah, the more sin I make, the more grace I take. There you go. Exactly. And so, um, again, to, to kind of go back to an earlier point, what I love about Kierkegaard is his ability to to push the effort and push the striving and push the holiness and the virtue and all these sorts of things. And yet um, uh, the push is a response to the grace of God that has been freely given. It is not to uh, receive the grace that has been given. So the balance of those two things I find. In- so it's like, it's like, it's not indicative. It's not imperative indicative. It's not do this. So you'll be blessed. Yeah. It's, it's indicative imperative. Like yeah. you're, you've been blessed, reconciled, forgiven. Now you get to live in light of yes. the freedom of forgiveness. I was listening, uh, to a Tim Keller sermon on a walk today with my dog and I had never thought of this and he was so right. He said, God saved Israel from Egypt and then gave them the law. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. It's, yeah. It's, just, it's so obviously true, but it, it's so poignant. <laughs> so. It's funny because I actually don't think there's real like antinomianism. I mean, people call it antinomianism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anti-life. I really think because it's like if you know you're forgiven, it's like when are you when are you the best spouse when you've really blown it and your spouse or you know the best friend when you've really blown it and your friend imputes to you a character you don't have like and then you're not like oh I'm gonna do that again. I mean, it's really, I, oftentimes I think that kind of the cheap grace kind of stuff, I think is often grace, not experience, <laughs> grace, not never encounter, you know, it's a it's, really it's good a, point. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, so can I ask you like a personal question? Sure. You, would you count yourself as like a sad soul? Cause I always think like, you know, you have been, you have been the, you have been the secretary treasurer of the Soren Kierkegaard society, which I'm guessing is a sonnet, but I'm just thinking like, like if you're drawn, I mean, like if you're drawn to Kierkegaard studies, I'm just, I'm, I, I would think there's kind of like, there's gotta be a little bit of connection, not just to the philosophy, but to the philosopher. Yeah. Um, it's a good point. Um, he is, he is the melancholy Dane after all. Uh, Are there any other kind? Yeah. Right. Right. Um, 
Uh, well, they, you know, Denmark consistently is rated the, the, the place with the most happy citizens. So I don't know how that works, but it's a veneer, Mark. <laughs> it's just like the IKEA countertop, yes. right? Yes. Um, except that's Swedish, but, uh, yeah, I would say that Kierkegaard is one of the funniest people I've ever read. So, mm. um, you know, is he serious at points? Well, yeah, he's a philosopher. He's supposed to be, but. You know, I, I I don't know what other people do, but when I write in my margins and something makes me laugh, I don't write LOL. I put a smiley face. And if you were to look at my Kierkegaard books, there's a smiley face everywhere. Um, he is a hilarious writer. Now, it's, it's not like, you know, um, hilarious in any other sense than a geeky sense. But for those of us who enjoy geeky philosophy, he's going to make you laugh. And, and a lot of times, I think, um, part of what, what's making you laugh, it's kind of like an uncomfortable laugh because the joke's on you, right? So you, when you read a, a book like, um, you know, there's a, there's a, well, the, the, his, he wrote a book called Either Or, which is this sort of collection of essays that represent an aesthetic position of life. So the lowest form of life. Is that a subtle uh, screw you to Hegel too? Like both things? Yeah, yeah, probably it could be. I mean, everything is almost a subtle screw you to Hegel here. <laughs> what is it? I once overinterpreted that and I had a professor at grad school say, yeah, it's too much. It's okay. So, but, uh, but, but yeah, he writes this, this essay. It's called a rotation of crop. It's called rotation of crops, a theory of social prudence. And he's basically, and it's, it's written in, in, in a, uh, in a pseudonymous voice. So, you know, it's, it's, this is not Kierkegaard saying, here's my theory. A- anyone with a, with, with little education would recognize that. But he basically puts forth this theory that says the root of all evil is not money, but it's boredom. And so the way that you cure this is that you rotate your crops, but, but, but we apply this to our experiences. So Scott, you've been really fun, but I'm kind of sick of you. I'd like to go hang out with someone different. And so before I get bored of you, I go find someone else. And, you know, I really liked um, taking up kayaking, but I don't know, my muscles hurt. So I'm going to try football this week. And, and it's this way of working your way through life that, that I think is, is actually um, common. Uh, I think we have a consumeristic view of relationships and among other things. It's like gratification produces new desire. That's right. And I, <laughs> and I want to, you know, ward off boredom. And so you're, you're reading this, you're like, that's kind of funny. That's a good point. And then all of a sudden you realize this entire thing is mocking my way of living. Um, so there, there, you know, he's melancholy, he's sad, but, but part of the, <laughs> there's some humor to it if you're willing to, uh, allow yourself to be critiqued, I guess. So. So what you're saying is you rose to Kierkegaard prominence in a society with your sunny disposition. <laughs> keen sense of humor. Actually, it was my hair. Let's be honest. Well, of course, you have Kierkegaard in here. And, and I mean that in the best sense. Mark, thanks for taking some time to talk with us, and I'll actually be seeing you in October. Looking forward to it. Uh, yeah, so thanks, and please, everybody, buy this book. So if for no other reasons, you can have more smiley faces <laughs> in the margins of your life. <laughs> Kierkegaard, a Christian missionary to Christians by Dr. Mark T. Thanks, Mark. Thank you, Scott. You were sitting at the coffee table where you're reading Kierkegaard. Minutes later you proceeded to say something that almost broke my heart You said, darling, I'm tired of living my routine life There is so much in the world that I'd like to soak up with my eyes Well, baby, I never did stop you from going out to explore We can do it all together from the colds of the poles to the tropics of Borneo Welcome back for another week on the Mockingcast. We have back with us, he has spawned yet again, the animating force of the zeitgeist, David Zoll. When you saw Thomas, did you hold him up and say, I will call you Mini Geist. You complete me. <laughs> I, I heard that joke on the cast last week. I thought it was pretty good. I thought it was good then, at least. But uh, yeah, Tommy is in good shape. He's extremely little, um, and he, but he's animating. He's, he's animating away. David, thanks for filling us in on the detail that's extremely little, because a lot of our listeners was like, were like, well, maybe, is he up to 5'9 yet? I mean, thanks. Well, honestly, you're you do forget these, how little these little. things are. They start out really small. And we have with us, for the first time, and she's going to be a regular person occupying the chair, one of the chairs, a rotating chair, Carrie Willard of Houston, Texas. How are you, Carrie? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing very well, other than, as I explained before we started taping, my just kind of bad experiences 
tonight with public transportation, of which I'm a huge fan and I love SEPTA. They just got screwed by Hyundai and they're rebuilding all the trains. So I, like Jesus on the cross, am absorbing <laughs> their follies and faults onto myself. Carrie, you are... That's rough. You, you, you've been a lawyer and yes. you currently help students manage their behavior at the undergraduate level. I try. You write a blog, which is Contessa... Curessa.wordpress.com. Yes, I know. I, I got to get rid of the WordPress. Is, is it a mix, uh, Carrie? Is it a mix of uh, Curate and Barefoot Contessa, or is it Carrie and Barefoot Contessa, or how is it? How, where does Curessa come from? I've always wondered. It was... It, it, it was a mix of curates That's and Contessa. It's it was a n- nickname from a friend who who was very cute and clever about all that. But he thought I needed a title. Well, and somehow clearly I did. We've got to get the word to Ina, uh, Carrie. We've got to tell her that the, <laughs> the Curessa is out there gaining on the Contessa every moment. <laughs> I've already told Ina Garden in person in a microphone that I love her, and so I, I don't know how much more she can handle from me without a restraining order, but. <laughs> It was a moment. I thought it was actually just a shy person's evangelism tool. Like, okay, I want to share my faith. I'm an Episcopalian. I'm not comfortable. What if I call it Curessa? No one knows it is. Well, it's like a curate, um, which I'm a church person. I'm married to a... Like, I thought, you know, it was one of those, like, shot, like workshops. Like, Episcopalians can say, share their faith, too. Even though it feels awful and awkward and impolite. <laughs> oh, man. That's exactly Humanists can share so, their faith thanks. as well. Exactly. <laughs> it's uh, hey, humanize me. Yeah, and you are a regular Mockingbird contributor, and also you're going to be bringing the heat at the Mockingbird Oklahoma conference. Now, I heard a rumor that part of it will be an actual performance of Oklahoma with the speakers all playing. To it. Is that would that- be so exciting. That would be so. I wish amazing. I could confirm um, that rumor, but um, <laughs> Carrie, unless you've got something planned that I don't know about. <laughs> I could bring maybe a karaoke microphone or something. But. Well, Scott, I I don't think we yeah. we we haven't actually great. mentioned it, or at least not that not that I recall. But this is a really a, a, I can't believe it's come together. It's come together beautifully. It's a the last uh, Friday and Saturday of October, the 28th and 29th. It's a completely free conference at All Souls Episcopal Church there in Oklahoma City. Uh, but free does not uh, equate to, uh, you know, cheap because we're going to have an incredible dinner. We're going to have amazing speakers and uh, we're going to have, you know, I think everyone comes is going to get a free issue of the magazine. Um, and you're going to get to hear Carrie in person. We also got John Newton coming. Uh, Jonathan Michigan's going to be there. I uh, I'll be there um and Alex Large and and some local people there in Oklahoma City but it's Alex Small <laughs> Alex Small and Alex Large. Yeah, so uh the the um registration's open. I mean, even though it's free, we would love to know how many people to plan for. So, that's emberdokc2016.com. But I'll, I'll be on the website uh tomorrow Friday. If somebody, if some generous donor from Oklahoma has a thousand dollars, I will come and host a karaoke party there. <laughs> what would? Well, actually, they'd have to rent the equipment too, though. That would be. Yeah, I could do that all under. I could keep that all under. Well, even rent you a Hyundai. Exactly. By the way, I could not do anything for Oklahoma, but I did play my senior year. I was a walk-on, like I wasn't in any musicals. Decided to try out, and I got the part of Horace Vandergelder in Hello Dolly. So there you go. Congratulations. Hello, Dolly. Well, hello. Hey, look, there's Dolly. It's so nice to have you back where you belong. That's getting cut He still got it. I I never had it. (laughs) I never. It's like back back in my day, I never had a day. (laughs) So, well, David, that being the case... Let's just get right into the meat of things and start on a somber. And yet, it's hard to be somber when you say Gene Wilder. I know. <laughs> because it's Gene Wilder died this week, and that is a real source of sadness, but it's also a source of joy and kind of rejoicing, in fact. I, Gene Wilder being the comic actor who was in all those Mel Brooks films and was, of course, Willy Wonka, and uh, then worked with Richard Pryor so much, was married to Gilda Radner. He's kind of the face of a lot of people's childhood, but he's the, the New York Times published a tribute to him, which I, I think was... Um, really appropriate because he, they say the Johnny Depp 
though not as Wonka, but Johnny Depp might be the only person you could say was influenced by Wilder because he's such a singular personality and his great trick or his great, uh, what's in it just completely inimitable about Gene Wilder is the way he would go from super calm to uh, shouting the way he would lose it, the way he'd have a breakdown, like he does at the end of Willy Wonka when he when they try to say, "Hey, it's time to give us our free chocolate," and he goes, "No, sir, I will not be giving you free chocolate." And it's and and then he, then he settles right back down. But to watch this guy boil over, and there's there's always something like a little almost psychotic uh, and very lovable though in those eyes. Um, he's very the equilibrium is just kind of almost eerie and then he gets set off and he's just uh he's a real one of a kind and i think we've all missed him because he hasn't really done much for the last 20 years or so he kept it secret that he had alzheimer's from what i can tell carrie that i loved him but that scene in willy wonka when he when he says no sir that terrified me that terrified me as a kid and i was always glad for the tied up happy ending but i was I was kind of scared of him after that too. Like, what else is he gonna do? What else is you know? It's kind of like mm-hmm, he's a, mm-hmm. he's a lot of me not yeah. in a like nightmare kind of way, but it kept me on the edge of my seat after a while. So I I saw in the New York Times article too that someone said that he I, th- I think they said he had a face for comedy, which is so much nicer than saying he had a face for radio, yeah. right? But. <laughs> I say it about myself all the yeah, time. Yeah, he did have a very expressive face. I I, I liked him a lot. Yeah, he really it, the. He's. You knew when you were. He kind of played himself in every single mm-hmm. thing he was in. Young Frankenstein uh, will come as no surprise to people that know him, but it was one of my father's favorite movies, uh, and he subjected it to us to it when we were, you know, like seven. And it's uh, Young Frankenstein. People don't know it's Mel Brooks's parody, black and white parody of. Frankenstein and all the Universal Horror films and Wilder just gives a performance for the absolute ages but I still don't think I, 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 I people recite lines of that to me and now only now am I getting the jokes because I watched it when I was six and I don't know what, what knockers were for example and there's a whole thing about knockers in there <laughs> and uh, the Igor. What are knockers David? Yeah. I don't Do you know what, now? A roll in the what hay. Not, I don't know. There's all these, all these uh, very uh, tawdry <laughs> jokes. Anyway, Gene Wilder. Was Young Frankenstein the one with Abby Normal? Was it Abby Normal? <laughs> Abby Normal, yes. Did you put, what, what brain did you put in the months? I won't be mad. Yeah. Uh, Abby. My husband Abby always Normal. brought up Abby Normal when my niece Abby was born. I was like, you can't call her that. Wait, wait. Is, <laughs> did he okay. play um, Igor? Was that... Who, which brand did- no but basically no the guy I forget the actor that plays Igor the guy with the really another with curious eyes but he's like what what brain did you put in, in the monster you won't get mad I won't get mad Igor uh, a brain um, an, an Abby normal oh, oh, Abby. Oh, 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 <laughs> I'm just choking I him I <laughs> put an abnormal brain <laughs> I'm only now getting the joke the pun as we speak as a 37 year old <laughs> My favorite Gene Wilder line is, you know, in Blazing Saddles when Sheriff Bart, who's the the black sheriff, yeah. <laughs> and you know, he comes in, in the Gucci outfit. They're all like, you know, everybody like hates him after like a particularly racist exchange, which you know particularly is relative in that film because there are there's so much r- racial like and it's great. Also, Richard Pryor was hired to on that Mel Brooks hired him and he's thinking he'll write some really seedy and you know edgy racial jokes he wrote no racial jokes the line he did write though that was most famous is when uh, Alex Karras the guy who plays Mongo is sitting there no one care about Mongo. Mongo just a pawn in the game of life. That was Richard Pryor's line. <laughs> he wrote. But, you know, it's great because there's this beautiful imputation scene where the Waco kid, Gene Wilder's character, is this drunk and he's shaky and he's the fastest gun in the West, but he's kind of like depressed. And who like sees life in him as black sheriff who nobody likes. And then they become this, this really interesting friendship. And after he's kind of discouraged, like they're never going to accept me. Uh, the Waco kid says to Sheriff Bart, you got to remember, these are just simple farmers. These are people of the land, the common clay of the New West. You know, morons. <laughs> <laughs> that just, I am just... that common clay of the Midwest, by the way. <laughs> so, Karen, Karen, I can handle it. Many things could be said about you, but <laughs> not, common is not one of them. Gene Wilder, rest in peace and... If Gene Wilder is not in the Heavenly Kingdom, it's going to be a lot less fun. We didn't say any rules, did we, Charlie? Wrong, sir. Wrong. Wrong, sir. Wrong. Wrong, sir. Wrong. Wrong, sir. Wrong. You lose. 
let's talk multiverse. The multiverse theory. There is an incredible, uh, really fascinating article in the Atlantic by um, what's it? Sam Chris is that his name? Is that how I say it, Scott? Um, I'm just yeah, Sam Chris, talking about how the multiverse idea is rotting culture, and uh, the subtitle being what looks at first glance like an opening up of possibilities and actually an attack on the human imagination. And he explains a little bit of quantum physics and about electrons and how, you know. Uh, electrons going through two slits in the metal at the exact same time but he, he's the, the thrust of the article is not actually that interested can i just say can i just say david every time i see the kardashians on tv i'm like it's the freaking multiverse <laughs> this is the pro- anything tawdry in reality tv i look and i think immediately i think physics it's the multiverse the kids, the young people, you have multiple universes. Then the kids have these baggy pants. The underwear is showing. Dogs and cats sleeping together. <laughs> it's all physical. Oh, man. Ghostbusters, too. The... um. Well, he talks about how, you know, every time these atoms, go, one collapses one way or they, they, this different ways, a new universe is created or and that there is no such thing as multi-multiverses. There's just one multiverse where there's there's a world in which every possible thing has happened. So, you know, yeah. Well, it's a theory, right? It's a theory. It's a completely There's this experiment, right, where you t- shoot lasers through. Through metal. Uh, you shoot a laser at, at, through the metal with these two slits and like... They, they, like they look like. I, how do you explain this? It looks like it, instead of a beam, it, it seems a, it becomes a wave. Yeah, and, and why does it become a wave? And how does it know where to go? And 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 the multiverse is one of the ways, right? They explain this phenomena that 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 somewhere you know there's a, there's an alternate electron that went through the other slit. Yeah. Or something or and, other, and, and so the differences between the universe like you would have the exact same universe except for one. Carrie, how much undergraduate science did you do? <laughs> I took astronomy. <laughs> I a, That's a gimme course, right? <laughs> I have a BA. Um, I, I have a BA and BS. <laughs> <laughs> I admire scientists so much because I don't understand what you people are talking about. Um, I no, I, I, I'm. Does really it sound okay. like we understand what we're talking about? <laughs> <laughs> there's like electrons, electrons, you know, and like a laser, and there's like metal, Quantum. and then it's multiverse. Quark. I'm really okay with like using my cell phone and not knowing how it works, and you know, I'm, I'm comfortable with a little ambiguity in my life that this might be happening in another universe, and I, I don't necessarily even know about that, but um, but it's it's all very interesting. Well, the, the really reason is, we, I, we bring it up in the cast tonight is because the the guy's actually less interested in the theory itself, and frankly, I'm less interested in the theory itself because I don't quite understand it. I understand it about as well as, about as, well as uh, you, Scott, but it's that uh, the the... He's interested in the effect it has on culture, on human beings, and that how, um, you know, it, it actually, it, we all have regrets, you know, we think, uh, oh, I wish I had, you know, never, you know, it's like Sliding Doors, that movie, you know, I wish I had, you know, talked to the girl instead of not talked to her, how would my life been different, and it, it kind of consoles people in one level and that you don't have anything to regret because uh, that's actually happened somewhere. But um, in in some in the multiverse, somehow that you actually did end up with that person and not this person. Uh, but it also means that in a multi, in, there's a multiverse in which you're suffering, and every moment you exist here, you're suffering worse there. It and the whole thing is actually the way that he describes it is, um, you know, that uh, we're we're sort of. It takes the agency or the the impulse for imagination away from people. That it's like a, it's like a belief in double predestination, almost like that. Uh, it, there's no point in doing anything because everything's already been done in another. Every permutation's already played out, and uh, you know uh, there's a thing in there called the Mandela effect that people should read about because it fascinates me. I'm sure there's some subreddits here. Um, but he, he basically says that at the end of the day, there's very little difference between the multiverse theory and a kind of a very deistic um, or actual or ultra uh, predestination idea of 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 God, a God that's kind of um, you know has no personality uh, necessarily, but uh, where, where everything there's no bother, there's no no reason to do anything because nothing can ever change. That's why he's talking about it. But it, it, Scott, what it, I mean, 
when we're talking, we just talked last week to someone who was so staunchly uh, materialistic or positivist. Uh, how, how what, what, what brought to, what, what did this bring to mind for you in, in light of that uh, just wonderful conversation you had? Do you mean the person that was materialistic and positive? Do you mean Ethan or Sarah? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Carrie, Carrie did you, did you listen uh, yeah. to the conversation in question, the last week's podcast? I did. I did. And? Yeah. And? <laughs> and? 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 <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. What is Scott In another Scott universe, saying? I think I'm still suffering from yeah, that. Yeah. I think in the, in the multiverse, I think I'm still suffering from some conversations that happened last week. This but, is what Scott would say. Name names. Name names. Name names. Yeah. He said that. Yeah. No. That's, there's there's stuff that's... um. I always like that. I, I don't know if you watch 30 Rock, but oh, yeah. um, when Tracy Jordan did the hard to watch movie, that was his, that was his, ooh, like that was his thing. That was his, his golden project was this movie called hard to watch. So there's hard to listen to and hard to watch, but Scott, you did a beautiful job. Beautiful. A1. Well, thank you. I mean, thank you. That's, that's kind. I, I think, you know, and part is, you know, I mean, part is, you know, we knew each other years ago in Philadelphia a little bit. And, and I think what's interesting though, that what stood out to me in this article was when this guy, Sam, Chris is explaining how these electrons pass through in a way that seems like they shouldn't, you know, and how do they decide which slit to go through and how does it work this way? He references this book by Carl Heim, who I think was a Lutheran theologian. I, I've never read anything of Heim's. I've just seen him in secondary sources and footnotes, but in his book, Der Evangelische Glaube und das Denken der Gegenwart, which the German is actually the Protestant faith and the thought and, and, and thinking about the presence, I guess would be the, um, and thinking about pre divine presence or something. I did six weeks of German for reading. So that's my best I can do. It was a crash course, but he says, he says he gave us a perfectly workable answer. God did it. Mm -hmm. The almighty in his infinite benevolence carefully tends to the waveform collapse of every particle working on the tiniest levels to create a world kinder to human life. Haim actually is thinking about this. Like he's actually using God. And so he's basically like, so it's funny is that the multiverse theory is actually subscribed to by a lot of cosmologists and physicists. I mean, some people like Hawking, even Stephen Hawking says it's trivially true. You know, um, even people like Neil deGrasse Tyson pay lip service to the many worlds interpretation. But I think Bart would say, well, faith is for people that don't understand science or faith is for people that you know, are into magic and fairy tales, which is fine if that's what you need, if you need that kind of neurotic sort of mythology to get through life. But I think what Chris points out is that physicists exercise faith in cosmological speculation. Like, the, the, we can't get through life without exercising faith. And maybe, and this is a, you know, said from a position of faith, maybe God has designed a world where faith is necessary to for human flourishing and maturation. I mean, even even before the fall, Adam and Eve needed to have faith that this fruit that looked like it could cause no harm actually was deleterious to their own flourishing. And so even before the fall, even before sin, there's this calling to exercise faith. And so maybe faith is not something that's like plan B, but maybe it's yeah. Plan A, Scott. You so that you did a really beautiful job. If people haven't gotten to read it yet, but the 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 post you put up called the justification of faith, I thought did a really beautiful job at spelling that out. And that sort of we don't really get to choose faith or not. Faith in God is a, is a gift. It's not the result of sort of evidence or whatnot. But it's this it's 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 a miraculous gift. But the 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 you don't really get to choose whether or not you're going to be exercising faith. And to to me, one of the things that um, stuck out about that uh, interview. I mean, there was a lot of things that were sort of uh, shall we say disappointing. Um, Please say my Calvinism joke. You're, Please say my Calvinism joke. You're, just, you're my Episcopalian joke. I think we can all agree your jokes were the high point, and uh, it was just I found it to be slightly revealing that they could not be uh, uh, reciprocated. But the uh, Joss Whedon's got that. He's got that wonderful thing he said when he was receiving the outstanding lifetime achievement in cultural humanism from the Harvard Humanist Society. Uh, he here he is. He's not a humanist uh, chaplain per se, but he's he's he said that the enemy of humanism is is not. Faith, uh, faith. 
the enemy of humanism is hate, is fear, is ignorance, is the darker part of man that is in every humanist, every person in the world. He goes on to say, faith, faith in God is believing in something without proof. Faith in humanity means believing in something with a huge amount of proof to the contrary. <laughs> yeah. Amen to that, brother. I like that. One of our very dear friends is um, a member of the Society of Ordained Scientists, and his name is John Kerr. One of your what? One of your dear, dear friends. He's a friend. No, but your virgins. You oh, dear friends. Dear friends. I thought you said virgins. No. I was like, is this yet another level of Episcopalian is. monarchy? I didn't know either. But I just learned <laughs> verger a few months ago at a funeral. So like, I was like, virgins. What are they? No, are they behind one the vergers? Of our dear, dear. If I can enunciate, one of our dear friends, John Curry, he's the, a member of the Society of Ordained Scientists, and he gave one of the most beautiful sermons I've ever heard. Um, about the Fibonacci sequence, sequence, mm. so the Fibonacci numbers and, um, seeing beauty in God's creation and seeing beauty in the order that humans have made in God's creation. And I'm not doing the sermon justice at all, but, um, listening to him talk about science and faith is, you, you could have him as a guest on the Mockingcast. He's mm. so, and he, and he has a British accent, which is kind of fun. <laughs> um, but he is the reason. I'm sold. He's the reason, um, don't read too much into this, but he's the reason that my husband and I have children um, because he explained genetics to me in a way that made me not hate humanity. And um, he's, he's just... Was this a, because you're like, I'm in love with my husband, sexy guy, but like, I've just looked at his family and stuff and the genes... My family, like, no, I don't me, want to pass, I don't want to pass those on. And he's like, well, look, they're recessive. Get at least a 60% chance the kids are going to be more like you. No, it was the opposite. It was the opposite. I couldn't stand the thought of another me in the world. Um, but John Kerr is this is a really good evangelist for science wow. and faith living together. Um, so anyway, the, I, I think there's real value in seeing beauty in science and having faith kind of blossom from that. I, I want to meet that guy, you know, because I, I, I want to understand kind of the brain that can, that was really passionately interested in, in, in these things and can kind of integrate them into a sermon. Um, I'm, I'm less interested in uh, the uh, brain that is trying to see the, the whole point of life and religion is to steer people in towards uh what is it just be pure goodness what how how is it put it was it was like we characterized christians as people who were trying to do nothing but like introduce people to uh, a way of life that would be bring the most possible goodness into the world and then if you if and then just do that without god it's all about the it's all about basically manipulating people I think into behaving the way you want them to I, I was kind of struck by that uh, leaving but this is this is this is Scott's friend and I don't want to uh, be a jerk because I love Scott and I love uh, you know there's grace for everyone including uh, all of our guests on the mocking cast right Scott and let me just say the point I took most offense to on many fronts hey I want to apologize to all our listeners who have played Dungeons and Dragons and also <laughs> with stranger things, Egg on the face of anybody who's ever made fun of D&D players, baby. <laughs> Validation. Stranger Things, which, by the way, it's announced. It's confirmed. 2017. Stranger Things Season 2 is oh, coming. Oh, guys, and I'm, I'm going to put the video tomorrow that they did on Jimmy Fallon, where he, he and uh, Barb comes and reconfronts the actual actors from the show. So it's very funny. No spoilers. Uh, and our listeners, if you have not read C.J. Green's piece on Stranger Things. Run right now. Don't walk to your computer. Go on ember.com and read it. It's amazing. If people haven't read what Scott wrote this past week, it was really fantastic. And I, I really can't wait to see what you uh, come up with next, my friend. Me too. Thank you. And let's move on to shouting into the void. Shouting into the void. Yes, there's an article in The Atlantic called The Comfort of a Digital Confidant. There's a new app for Amazon Echo, uh, which is, I think uh, there's like a, it's like a um, Siri type person who's attached to the Amazon speaker uh, named Alexa. And the, um, right. First off, learn from Apple. If you have two names, well, it's like a thing, the Echo, and it's that, so Alexa, it's already too much. Like, 
Well, and, but then, but then, really, to improve it, you have Alex, and Alex is sort of the Bluetooth connector, and he's their friend, and because they don't really like each other totally, but then Alex comes in. <laughs> it's just too many gadgets already. Like I'm like, oh, that's overwhelming. I need this. I need this. So the first time I saw an, is it an Alexa? I saw Alexa. I, I saw this device at someone's house, and I was dropping off my son for a play date, and. I know this family, I know their kids, and the dad starts talking to Alexa. And I was like, oh my God, do they have another kid that I don't know about? Turn the music down, Alexa. It was actually talking to his device. You're like, you're like, bad mom, bad mom, bad mom. <laughs> oh my God, I thought I knew all the kids here. I, I thought I knew what I was doing. Is it another neighbor kid? No, it was the Amazon device. He was talking, he's kind of, it was, it was kind of a sharp, turn it down, Alexa. And I was like, he doesn't talk to his kids that way, but yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, it it's just electric. She has no personality. Well, this, uh, this, this article, though, I, I think, um, Carrie, if, as someone who's a, a writer and you've, I mean, you're so, you're really prolific and incredible. I, I really admire that. And, and you've also been keeping this blog for a number of years, but, uh, the, what the what the author does is he he goes or he or she I didn't I couldn't tell from the name uh, goes into sort of like unused platforms and talks about these various apps where you can record secrets and and just have only strangers hear them and stuff it's kind of like diary type things that that are taken to the next uh, level and but this is where it gets this is what where it piqued my interest where he says. He or she said, so much of human communication is wrapped up in the desire, uh, this desire, our inarticulate, inevitably futile wish to have another person understand us exactly as we understand ourselves. Alas, that person doesn't exist. The aching chasm between one person and another is exactly what generates so much misunderstanding, but also drives everything from making art to talking over coffee for hours. The very gap itself, making those rare Moments of connection feel like such ecstatic relief. What we want is to be seen in our entirety, and we are always striving to inch closer to that impossible goal. This is where it gets, I think, particularly uh, relevant. He says, perhaps then that Instagram shot or confessional tweet isn't always meant to evoke some mythical pretend version of ourselves, like a, like a polished version of ourselves, but instead seeks to invoke the imagined perfect audience, the non-existence people existent people who will see us exactly as we want to be seen. We are not curating an ideal self, but rather an ideal other, a fantasy in which our struggle to become ourselves is met with the utmost empathy. Only where no one truly listens can we ever be perfectly heard. Hmm. Now, uh, you know, that's a um, that's a godless uh, point of view, but it, it gets at something uh deeply germane to our project i think that um, uh, people are not just trying to construct their perfect version of themselves is is but the perfect version of the the listener who not only sees them but knows them and understands and accepts them i mean that's you know the, that's the sort of part here of the non-judgment because it's complete silence but uh, i'd say we actually need more than just to, to funnel stuff out into the void we do need that yes we do need that, uh, that, that, that actual, yes, I hear you. And I, I'm not turning away. In fact, I'm, go, I'm, I'm, I'm coming closer. Um, but what, it, what, I mean, it takes this Amazon echo thing and just kind of goes, takes it to level, level 10, uh, very quickly. What, what do you guys, um, make of that? I just, you know, I can't. I think it, I, I must have a really bad Midwest accent because I, Scott thinks I'm talking about vergers. If I try to give my car directions or something, it, like it doesn't understand me. And so I would, I would be the person that would put this secret out into the void and someone would think that I actually said something terrible about livestock or something. And it, w- it wouldn't be what I wanted to say. And, it, um, I, I think I need I think I need God and <laughs> your confession I need God saying. instead of Alexa because you're like, you have too much anxiety to shout in the voice like I'll be misunderstood <laughs> I'll be misunderstood by the person that doesn't even by the, the the non-existent whatever that isn't I'm a mess I'm a mess but no I, I that's all that's all I could think about reading that article is like what if the secret that's heard by some stranger isn't really what i'm meant to say so i need god i don't i don't uh, i'm hoping that that he understands the the midwest cowtown accent better than he does okay it's probably how god speaks i mean that's how the news guys speak and gals i mean they they tried to your your accent is actually it's like 
It's accent normative. It's partly cloudy today in western Wisconsin with a chance of rain. Yeah, you ever heard that? Jim Giafkin has a bit where he's like, people always think that God's voice is like, hello, Carrie, how are you doing? Well, what if God's voice is like, hey there, Carrie, what's going on? You know, it's like yes. Cletus the Slack-jawed yokel. Now, I always think he's the guy. I always picture like God is like, Woody Allen. Like, I, I'm always thinking, it's like, why, why did this happen? I just saw that you were very good at the part. And I know it was awful and intractable a couple of years and it was hard, but I thought you could play it. I mean, I was, you're brilliant. I mean, that's, you know. But yeah, I mean, I think it's also, it's interesting because we're talking about solitude. And we also had an article that will be, it's in another weekend this week, about this mortuary guy who, buries people that no one will bury that yes it's incredible piece. Um, so i grew up my dad um my dad's an episcopal priest and when i grew up he was also the hospice chaplain in our hometown so if someone didn't have a church and wanted a church funeral wanted a christian funeral they would call my dad and so we were pretty much on a first name basis with the funeral directors in town and this was before cell phones and everything so i i was you know comfortable with funerals and death um to a certain degree. And um, this reminded me a lot of a certain funeral that my dad did. And I, I don't know how old I was. I think I was a teenager because I think when I was five, six, seven, like every little girl, I thought my dad could hang the moon. I thought he should run for president. But by the time you're a teenager, you kind of realize your parents are human beings and they make mistakes. But the golden sheen returned to my dad in my eyes when he, um, he did a funeral for the victim of a suicide when that person's, church would not bury him they mm. wouldn't do the funeral and um that was such a moving moment um for me to see my dad in that light but also it, it was just it was a very grace-filled moment and it remind when i read this article about this funeral director i, I thought about that funeral and um it was it was it was really very moving i, I really liked reading about him yeah his peter stefan uh who sounds just like an unbelievable, unbelievably hardworking uh, man who who really decided early on when he decided to be a mortician, he's also a, a musician, that he would not be turning people away if they couldn't pay uh, or if there was some stigma attached to them. He talked about how early on uh, he no one wanted to bury the Hispanics. And so he became known as like the Spanish funeral home. And then during the AIDS epidemic, he would, he was uh, the only, one of the only people burying uh, people who died of uh, HIV. And um, then the, the, the sort of most, I don't know, hit you between the eyes moments is when it turns out he's in Boston, he's in, he's in Worcester. And um, it turns out he's the guy that buried um, uh, Tamerlan Tsarnev, the, the guy, one of the, one of the, brothers who uh, set off the bombs at the Boston Marathon a few years ago. And he's, he said he got an enormous amount of pushback on it, that they wanted these, I mean, what do you do with these bodies? There's, you know, people don't want to have anything to do with uh, someone like that. And he goes and gets them in the middle of the night and then he gets home and somehow the word has gotten out and every media outlet's there looking for answers. How dare he in the moment um, accept this body or dignify this person's life by planning a burial. And he said he had one answer. And this is what he said. He says, we bury the dead. That's what we do. Doesn't matter who it is. I can't separate the sins from the sinners. I can't separate the sins from the sinners. And, you know, um, what to say? This is a man who turns away, who does not turn away those who have been turned away uh, uh, everywhere else. And those who maybe have deserved to have been turned away. Uh, in that moment, who knows how I would have responded if my, one of my relatives had been hurt in that, uh, in that, that uh, explosion. Uh, but he really has a blanket acceptance of that which is dead. And, um, you know, the, the parallels to me are just jumping off the page. And I also see this man's face and I think to myself, um, it's a beautiful face. It's the, it's the, it's the face of a man who has, who has seen, uh, or embodies something of grace in practice in, at the most profoundly desperate and despairing point of people's lives. Uh, and he said, he, I'd like to meet him. I'd love to shake his hand. My grandfather was a on my dad's side was a a more ch- a, a, a funeral director and I remember uh I saw my first I saw him do his first work I was like 3 I wandered downstairs I think they I stayed the night there or something and it, and it was weird I mean I just remember 
I saw the embalming process and it looked like the only thing I remember it looked like the mall where there's like fountain like lemonade and iced tea and like there's like like liquids you know and two different things and and I mean that's probably too early to see things like that and you know he was not he was kind of the antithesis of this guy he was it was it, it, he was in the next town over in a very racially mixed town and people knew that he was not an open-minded guy and we weren't close um but as you were saying that, and I was thinking about this. I'm thinking about you know the the echo in the story. Like you have the cry of dereliction where Jesus cries out and dies alone. It, that that we wouldn't have to mm. be confronted with that. And and you think of who takes his body, and we don't know. Like it's Joseph of Arimathea and, and Nicodemus, the one who couldn't see. You know who's 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 one of the. You know, in John's gospel, he serves as one of the archetype, like, it's it's one of these, like, sketch comedies, like, Israel's teacher, how could it go back in my mother's womb? I mean, like, you know, like, but he's someone that, like, is on the edges of faith, and yet also in the midst of confusion, and yet at the death of Jesus, and, and with Jesus' broken and mutilated body, they're the embers of new life and faith, and so maybe mm. you know, it, 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 the death of of this reality and the birth of the new one maybe we'll see people we don't expect Mm. uh, around the risen christ body at least that's we can hope for and we hope the hell that gene wilder's there (laughs) yes indeed pure imagination guys well gang thank you again and keep the faith thank you and i will you too thanks for being here guys thank you again Thanks for listening to The Mockingcast. As always, you can find any of the content we reference on our website, mbird.com. If you like what you heard and you'd like to spread the word, please go over to iTunes and give us a rating, maybe even write a review, hopefully a favorable one. Really, it does help. And share it with a friend. We exist because of the enthusiasm, generosity, and support of you, our listeners and readers. And for that, we are most grateful. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend.